Welcome to another Sustainable Wine Blog podcast with me, Toby Webb. And joining me in today's podcast is Richard Sanford. So, afternoon, Richard. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Toby. Excellent. Now, we're here in your office, uh, opposite your tasting room uh, for your Almorosa winery and vineyards. But before we talk about Almorosa specifically and, and, and about sustainability, you were the, pretty much the first person to make wine around here. Um, and what I mean by around here, of course, is the, the Santa Rita region on, on the central coast where we are in California. Tell us how you got started and how good wine got started around here in, in Santa Rita. Richard. Well, it's a very long story, Toby. I'll try to be succinct to say that uh, I had uh, studied geography at college and uh, then I was drafted when I, gra- when I graduated from school and went into the Vietnam War and came back uh, wanting to be involved in something earthly connected and thinking uh, I would look for the right place to, to grow Pinot Noir. I had been introduced to a beautiful Volnay while I was in the Navy. So I went through the climate records uh, in Burgundy, comparing those with California, and recognized through my research the transverse mountain range here in the central coast, which are anomaly in California. They run east and west and allow the winds coming off the ocean to moderate the climate. So in our region, it's about a degree Fahrenheit a mile as you go east or west. And so we can identify just the places to plant the appropriate vines. I uh, decided that I would plant uh, a vineyard uh, out west of the town of Buellton toward the coast, about 24 miles from the ocean. And this was 1971. There were no other vineyards at the time. So uh, I was able to uh, encourage some investors to invest in our enterprise. And it was lucky for me, Toby, after coming back from the war, that all of my equity was sweat equity. So I was actually driving on the tractor, getting the vineyard established, and doing it really hands-on. So it was all an inspiration of... uh, myself and I had a partner, Michael Benedict, at the time when we planted the first Sanford and Benedict Vineyard. 1976, uh, we made a wine that was really recognized uh, as a a Burgundy-style Pinot Noir. And it raised a lot of eyebrows as to the potential of Pinot Noir in this region because my prejudice at that time was that uh, Pinot Noir had been planted in climates that were too warm even in the cooler climates of Northern California. So that really set off a wave of planting, and now, remarkably, as you have seen, every single ranch along the road has a vineyard, and there are Pinot Noir vineyards in the Santa Rita Hills. We have five different vineyard zones in this valley, in the Santa Ynez Valley, so as you go further inland, it becomes warmer, and there are different grape varieties. But Santa Rita Hills is known specifically for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And where are you today with, with Almarosa? What, what, what are you making and what are some of the numbers about you know, the cases that you produce each year? I'm just trying to give our listeners a perspective on how, how well, big your operations are. Um, my wife and I, uh, Tecla, my wife Tecla came along in 1976 just in time for the first vintage. And... Uh, and uh, we worked together. In fact, she was the person who really encouraged me to be organic. 
and uh, opened my eyes to the possibilities and importance of organic. And so, and we've been on an organic and sustainable path ever since. But uh, we grew the Sanford Winery up to about 50,000 cases of production and about 400 acres of vineyard, and then left the Sanford Winery in 2006 to establish the Almarosa Winery. And uh, we're completely committed in all of our estate vineyards uh, to be organically and certified organic. But with this uh, vineyard now, uh, you know when I started out there were no vineyards, but now we have a number of vineyards from which I can buy grapes. And so it's been fun for me to be able to have longer term contracts with each of a number of different vineyards up and down the valley. And each part of the valley is offering a little bit different characteristic in the wine. So we have different clonal selections and different geography of these different vineyards. You know, Toby, when I started out, uh, there were not a lot of different regions of Pinot Noir. But now we have, uh, you know, the Russian River Valley and uh, Carneros and Santa Rita Hills. And uh, there are a number of different identifiable vineyards uh, that are specific to Pinot Noir. So it's become an exciting time. And uh, what really is exciting for me at this stage in my career is to see a lot of the young winemakers coming into this region and deciding that this is where they're going to make their statement in wine. And we have some super uh, wines coming out of the region for that reason. You mentioned uh, to me that you thought this region would be very suitable for sparkling, and, and so you make a couple of very good sparkling wines, particularly your Brut Rosé, which I've just tried, which I think is superb. Well, thank you. It's... Uh, well, gosh, uh, Toby, the last time I made sparkling wine was uh, 1996 for the millennium, just for the celebration. But I've recognized uh, it because of our cool climate and that sort of bright, crisp angularity of our white wines, uh, that uh, we really should be making sparkling wine from the place. And so uh, we set afoot uh, a plan three years ago to create uh, Blanc de Blanc from uh, uh, half from our uh, Chardonnay vineyard at the Havali Ranch and half from our Pinot Blanc vineyard at the La Encantada. So the Pinot Blanc, you know, typically being fairly fat would not be appropriate for sparkling, but there is a, a beautiful uh, bright acid and almost nectarine-like character that sort of works so beautifully with the Chardonnay, which has more of a tropical fruit character. All very, very modest nose. And uh, then in the Brut Rosé, I think you recognize that uh, almost um, strawberry, that mountain strawberry, it's a mm -hmm. fraise du bois kind of nose. And then I love that sort of breadth of moosiness and texture that the wine has. So thank you. I, I, uh, I'm very proud of those wines. So I imagine we'll see more of those in, in the coming years. I think, you know, for some reason, the last two years, Toby, uh, there have been over a dozen winemakers who have made a sparkling, so... That's a great trend. Well, Richard, let's talk a bit about sustainability. Um, sustainability is a, is a word that is used and abused in industries all over the world, and I think it's fair to say the wine industry is... Uh, 
not exempt from that. Um, what does it mean to you? I mean, because you've mentioned organic a couple of times, but you haven't mentioned biodynamic or natural. So wh where do you stand on defining sustainability for your work? Well, Toby, I uh, uh, started out, um, I learned from the place and learned from the people who were farming the place. I learned from asking a lot of questions and observation. And uh, starting out in a new business, learning that way, of course, uh, my teachers were conventional farmers originally because there weren't any other kinds of farming at the time. You know, I've learned subsequently that before the war, everything was organic, you know, and then we got caught up in chemical usage. But and the miracle chemicals that were going to... Yeah, uh, the miracles. Uh, and I remember... Revolutionize everything. I remember, uh, you know, those canisters that you would put your DDT in and the plunger to spray around, and it was all over the place. But... Um, the big issue for us, and you know what I've recognized also, Toby, if you grow the grapes in the right place, it's really hard to kill a grape. You know, I mean, they love growing if they're grown in the right place. Where there are problems or where they're on the edge of, uh, of uh, 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 climate for them, for instance, if it's too wet or too foggy or whatever, I think that molds are our biggest hazard. But a lot of the chemicals were designed to be used for weed control. And so, you know, spraying all this chemical just to, to control the weeds, uh, we started doing that and decided, you know, this is pretty impractical. I asked the chemical salesman what was happening to all these chemicals we were spraying in the ground. And they said, oh, they were evaporating into the air, and they had all kinds of stories. But I still recognize that we were putting tons of material on the earth. And where was it going? And it was just going right into the earth. And I thought to myself, with the encouragement of my wife, who said, you know what, uh, we are eating from our beautiful organic garden. Why don't you just go grow the grapes organically? And I was frightened and I thought, you know, what would happen if we have an issue that we need to take care of? But uh, sure enough, I tried, and after two years, we weaned ourselves of all chemical herbicides and pesticides and uh, became organic. And we were organic for ten years before we decided, well, maybe we'll apply for certification. We were doing it because that's what our heart felt. So finally we thought, well, maybe it will be important for some sort of... Uh, promotion at some future time. So we became certified, gosh, I think in 1996 or something like that. So we were the first certified organic vineyard in Santa Barbara County and continue our certifications to this day. Does certification help you? I mean, what does it do for you? Because there's a big criticism of certification in, in much of sustainable agriculture in that it can suck up a lot of money uh, to give you a piece of paper to tell you that you're doing what you knew you were doing anyway? Well, i tell you, I think that a lot of the people who are naysaying about certification want to explain their position on not being organic because they want to be able to use heavy-duty chemicals. We have a term called nuking it. 
I'm familiar, familiar with that. With that. <laughs> yeah. And you know, if you nuke something, it takes three years to gain your certification back. Mm. So I think uh, there are people. Uh, oh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> There are people, I think, who have created some greenwashing for sustainability. And uh, I think that, uh, are you familiar with the wise use movement in, mm -hmm. in conservation? You know, <clears throat> it's a move to try and imagine that we're doing the right thing. It's to, to, to make ourselves believe that we're being sustainable. Well, that can be the problem with some of these certifications because um, that's happened in other areas of agriculture. And, and I have a Google News alert every day for sustainable wine. And guess what most of the stories are about? They're about California wine. And there's about five or seven or ten different certification schemes. Everybody's calling themselves eco this and sustainable that. And a couple of them, when I looked into them, they were, they were basically saying, well, we're reducing chemicals use. Yeah, and then that's exactly where the greenwashing comes from. Mm. I think... Uh, but people you, are certifying that, and then they're waving the certificate, saying, look, I'm sustainable. Exactly, and that's sad, Toby, because uh, you can't... It doesn't have any teeth. And uh, I think that some of these certifications were created as a merchandising effort and as a PR stunt. Or as a cover for members of a trade association who don't really want to change. That's exactly true. Sadly, it is true. And, uh, but I would say that you have to look at the certifying agency. And uh, I think, uh, and I know a lot of people say it's very expensive, but it's not very expensive to be certified. You have an annual fee and you have a visitor that comes and reviews your records it's a matter of proper record keeping. But you know, proper agriculture is a matter of paying attention and of paying attention to the timing of application of materials. We do use material, but we use organically approved materials, mainly elemental sulfur for uh, control of uh, mildew, uh, but very little other chemicals. And so, you know, I think a lot of these, uh, oh, uh, certifying uh, agencies are creating just that. It's a, a paper that uh, shows that you are sustainable. You know, one of the big problems uh, with the wine business, Toby, is that um, there's no premium for organic. That uh, we are organic because that's the way we think it should be. I think that uh, we ascribe to the fact that sustainable is uh, leaving the world in a place where future generations can enjoy the same that we're enjoying from the world, so that to be truly sustainable, it's going to be a closed cycle. And uh, we're very keen on cover cropping and making sure that we have our open land covered with uh, green material, green when it's raining here. <laughs> it's pretty brown now, but that's the nature of California. We have winter rains, so it's very green in the winter and dry in the summer. But we're very aware of the potential for all of our topsoil to erode away, and so it's important to cover it with uh, grasses and legumes. Uh, we are aware of the carbon sink that all of our vines and the material uh, help. It's an it's a, a interesting uh, 
sort of irony that all of the vineyards planted in Santa Barbara County uh, have become a huge carbon sink for the neighborhood, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so we're really doing our part that way. But the whole point of organic and wine, uh, that organic wines have not been um, uh, um, embraced by uh, wine connoisseurs, because typically organic wines will not contain sulfur dioxide. I would not bottle a wine without SO2 to protect against oxidation. Mm. And by using SO2, uh, we are not allowed to say anything about organic. <clears throat> we cannot say anything about organic unless the wine is made in an organically approved winemaking facility. Uh, our, currently, uh, our winemaking facility is not currently approved organic, and mainly it's paper, uh, it's uh, keeping track of chemical usage in the winery. Uh, we are building a new winery now, which will be certified, and we will be able to say, uh, this wine is made from certified organic grapes, but it would not be able to say organic wine because of the SO2. Mm -hmm. And we have purposefully kept a distance from it because we don't want the connoisseurs. You know, we're in a fairly high-level quality of wine and, a, and, and, a, and consumer. And so we shy away from saying organic lest they think that it's organic wine and not going to be very good. Isn't that's a real contradiction. Yes, frankly. although we are seeing in some of the top wine brands of the quality, on the quality end, uh, shift towards us, but then they don't talk about it. So, for mm -hmm. example, Chateau Palmer in Bordeaux is now going biodynamic. You know what? Having been organic, Ponte Cano, very similar. And we would like to do the same. We'd like to, I'd like to go biodynamic and plan to do that. But, uh, you know, I wanted to stabilize everything out in an organic way first. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's wonderful. I, you know, uh, sadly, uh, the European... Um, well... Toby, capitalism doesn't encourage generational vineyard activity in America. Uh, you know some of these properties in Europe that have 14 generations of people still owning them. Mm. Uh, our system, you know, pays dividends for building up a brand and destroying it through marketing. There is not a huge incentive for a public company to invest in the land and the long-term nature. It's only families that would do that. So sadly that our system doesn't really think about the long-term. And uh, I'm so pleased to see that the families who are thinking long-term in the European vineyards are focusing on organic and biodynamic as, as an assumption. And that's the way I've been now. I would not imagine planting a vineyard not being organic mm. and not focusing on sustainable issues, so truly sustainable, not just for greenwashing. Yes. Well, I do hear that some of the bigger wine brands are, are taking a serious interest. Um, Concho Toro, for example, in, in South America, taking more of an interest. Fetzer, I know. Uh, do you know, Fetzer was huge, and uh, they, were, uh, they were really leading the way. Um, but did you know the Gallo Winery is probably the largest organic grower in the world? 
No, uh, which sorry, which one? Gallo. You oh, know, Ernest the, and Julia. Yeah, Gallo. Gallo. And are they all Gallo? All of their Sonoma, as I I believe, that all you might look into this that. Uh, their Sonoma vineyards are all organic. Well, they do say, of course, that if you're down in Chile, it's much easier to be organic. Because, <laughs> you know, because you've, well, you've got the, the weather conditions. But I, I didn't know that about the gallows. That's very interesting. <coughs> so it's, it is affecting the mainstream. That's got to be a good thing. You know what? It is. And I think that uh, I'm always hopeful. You know, our local uh, supermarket chain has a growing organic section. And... Mm. We shop in our in our very small organic store, but it's great to see uh, a supermarket with an increasing organic uh, opportunity. Absolutely, uh, Richard. Let me finish off by asking you about your your views on climate change. Almost every winemaker I've ever met, bar one or two, have, have said they're very concerned about it. The, the one or two I met who weren't concerned were in France, um, down in Bandol, and they'd just had very consistent weather for, uh -huh. for decades, as they do. Um, and of course, they're all organic, because they don't even need anything because of the proximity to the sea and the, and the sun. But every other winemaker I've met, including many others in Bandol, are very concerned about climate change, about earlier harvests, um, about alcohol levels in wine. And I know there are lots of factors there around, around alcohol, but what, what are your views on, on climate? And what have you seen since you've started making wine in the early 70s? Golly, Toby, the, uh, you know, I think that the proximity to the ocean for us is a real moderating influence so that we don't have uh, big shifts. We do have uh, frosts later in the spring and earlier in the fall. Uh, we used to be fairly benign and not have frost after, until after bud break, uh, but now we're having frosts, uh, uh, I mean frost before bud break, but now we're having frost after bud break and in, uh, in earlier in the fall. So um, that becomes problematic for us, but what, what I have recognized is that the colds are getting colder and the hots are getting hotter. There's a, huge, there's a big diurnal shift and then of course with the frost problem. And so uh, where when I first started and for the next decade there were no wind machines and no attempt at, uh, at any kind of frost protection. It wasn't necessary to have sprinklers for frost protection. But now most of the vineyards which are on the flats have frost protection in one way or another, whether it be these uh, standing wind machines or uh, irrigation for frost protection. <clears throat> I'm very concerned about global warming from a world perspective. Um, I think that uh, there's little we can do in our own neighborhood to prevent it. I mean, uh, we have to uh, do cultural techniques uh, to guard against it. Sometimes we, in order to guard against frost, we would prune later, so we get a couple of weeks extra in dormancy and that allows for us to be through a frost problem. <clears throat> but uh, I am concerned about it. Are you harvesting earlier than you used to? Yes. And, but interesting, this year we had bud break about three weeks early and our harvest is about a week early. So we've had another two weeks of time hanging on the vine, which is a pretty interesting hmm. change and difference. So. Down in the south of France, they're telling me it's three weeks earlier than it used to be. 
Right, but that's uh, we're about we're our bud break was three weeks, and now we're about a week. And so last year, it uh, it was two weeks early, and uh, we were three weeks early in the fall. So it's a it and uh, and it's never later. So I think it's reflecting a warmer overall climate of ripeness. Great. Well, um, Richard, conscious of your time, conscious of the, the listeners' time, thank you so much for, for your interview today You're and welcome. the tasting of your, your lovely wines. Much Thank you for coming, Toby.